Let us pray before we begin. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill our hearts and our minds. Lord, you said in your word that when he comes, he would teach us all things and bring to our remembrance all that you have taught. So we ask this morning, Lord, that by your spirit, you would guide us and teach us and fill us with understanding so that we can apply what you want us to apply, Lord, as your children in your kingdom. Amen. Well, today Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount with yet another very difficult, controversial, and radical teaching. We've already seen in Matthew 5.20 that these teachings, they build upon the expectation that one's righteousness must exceed the highest human examples, without which we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as we go along, we should keep this idea in mind. Because what Jesus is telling us is not a theory. It's not wishful thinking. Wouldn't that be nice? But a way he expects us to live our lives. Now, what Jesus has been presenting throughout this Sermon on the Mount is nothing less than a different world view, different from his audience of the first century and different from our culture and worldview. This is why when we hear the words of Christ and his teachings, we can find them hard to understand, even harder to follow. They can appear both shocking and perplexing. What does he mean? Now, a worldview describes a way that people interpret their world, make sense of their world. And in our society, although it's changing from generation to generation, we continue to be influenced by what is known as the Indo-European worldview. This worldview accepts a morality of equity and fairness. Everything is supposed to be equal and fair. This may sound great, and it is. But in practice, it can be stated like this. Do unto others as they do unto you. That's both equal and fair. It's known as the lex talionis, or the law of retaliation. This Indo-European worldview is most easily seen in our media, our sports, and our entertainment, particularly in action and superhero movies. Now, it goes something like this. The good person or the hero cannot do anything bad unless the villain does it first. Then he's allowed to do what would be normally bad. One example I can think of was the 1987 movie called The Untouchables. It's about an agent with the Bureau of Prohibition in the 1930s in Chicago named Elliot Ness. He's in the picture here on the the, the right. And he wants to prosecute a mobster named El Capone. In one scene, a police officer named Jimmy Malone, who's on the right of Elliot Ness, named Sean Connery, plays a role. He meets Ness in, of all places, a church. They're sitting in a church. And Malone says to Ness, he says these words, you want to get Capone? Here's how to get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. 
That's the Chicago way, and that's how you get Al Capone. That's the Indo-European worldview. Capone was so bad, so dangerous, that the police officer Malone argues, you know, you can and you should, if necessary, use the same tactics or worse if it means removing this fellow from wandering around society. We could also point to, to Batman, who to avenge death of his parents, set out to wage war on every criminal he could find, and he becomes vigilante. He only wants revenge, not really justice. We could name James Bond, Iron Man, the Hulk, X-Men, the Game of Thrones, and the list goes on. These are reflections of a morality of equity and fairness, but not necessarily justice or redemption. It's about getting even, about using the same means that are used against the hero. The hero cannot do bad stuff unless the villain does it first. So, to the relief of the audience, at last the hero can take down the villain and we cheer him on because the villain gets what he, what he deserves. So the next time you guys go and watch an action movie, look for the law of retaliation. You're going to see it. It's a pattern. It's part of our culture, but it is not part of Christ's culture. Jesus proclaims a new reality, a new worldview of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ exemplified this worldview in the way he lived, and above all, in the way he faced his death. He did not retaliate. He did not seek revenge. He did none of those things. Walter Wink, who was a professor of biblical interpretation, he says this about Jesus. His was not merely a tactical or pragmatic nonviolence seized upon because nothing else would have worked against Roman power. Rather, he saw nonviolence as a direct corollary of the nature of God and of the new reality emerging in the world of God. So nonviolence is not just a means to the kingdom, it is a quality of God's kingdom. This is no theory or wishful hope, but in reality, something which Jesus expects us to live. This is why this text is so difficult, because it's a way of living that is foreign to us. We naturally want to get even. You watch a small child toddler, and his brother hits him. He hits him back. It's natural. We want to get even. And I must admit, going through this passage has been challenging. Because I come to the question, just exactly what does Jesus mean with these words? What does he mean when he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go a one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now in practice, I must admit that most Christians have generally ignored this teaching. It, it seems impractical. It's an invitation, it seems, for people to treat us as helpless victims who will not resist. Wink goes so far as to say, interpret it in this way, this passage has become a basis for systemic training in cowardice. A Christian are taught 
to acquiesce to evil. So one common interpretation of these texts suggests that we should not resist. Jesus seemingly says that we are not to resist. So it would appear he commands us to be docile, compliant, to allow an oppressor to walk all over us. Turning the other cheek is interpreted as being weak and submissive without protest. I've had, I've had people tell me, you're a Christian, right? Is it safe to turn the other cheek? Ah, it's weak. You guys are so weak. Give your cloak also seems to encourage people to go limp in the face of injustice and hand over the last thing they own. Going the second mile has been turned into a platitude, meaning nothing more than extend yourself. Rather than encourage followers of Jesus to counteract their persecutors, these statements of Jesus have been transformed into reasons for us to, in actuality, participate in our own humiliation. However, this interpretation certainly does not describe Jesus. God's word shows us that Jesus willingly carried the burden of all human sin as he suffered and died on the cross, without, as I said before, any hint of a desire for vengeance or retaliation. Instead, in Luke 23:34, while suffering on the torture of the cross in intense, unbearable agony, what does Jesus say? He asked the Father to forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. That's what his response to personal evil. Now, as we move through this text more carefully, we will see that Jesus is not forbidding self-defense, nor is he saying we should abandon defending our neighbor in the face of evil. Rather, he is showing us a way that we can respond to evil that is nonviolent and that reflects the character of our Father in heaven. So let's look at this text and see what's going on. We have the first portion of what Jesus says. You heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is drawn from several Old Testament texts, including Exodus 21, 22-25 and Leviticus 24, 17-22. The Exodus passage goes like this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. Leviticus echoes this. Whoever takes a human life shall be surely put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it should be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall he also be given. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So the principle in place here is that people are of equal value with the same punishment for the same offense. Now, Walter Kaiser notes this, that such punishment must match but not exceed the damage done, and that such punishment is the responsibility of the court 
and not a personal vendetta or private retaliation. The effective result, that's an effective result, (laughs) is to prevent and limit violence and retaliation. So the law of retaliation was in the end merciful because it stopped vengeance from spinning out of control. Or as Philip Yancey says, the problem with vengeance is that it never evens the score. All vengeance does is create a chain reaction of more violence, a one-upmanship. But by the time of Jesus, the rabbis had limited retaliation to the payment of money. So it's not literally an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but a sum of money that reflected the loss and the damage. So, for example, if someone hits your car bumper, we expect the damage to be fixed. We don't turn around and say, well, I'm going to smash up your bumper, no matter how much you want to do it. So we we limit law retaliation. However, it's what Jesus says next that is really shocking and puzzling. And this is where we require the Holy Spirit's help to give us understanding of what he's talking about. Because he says, but I say to you, in contrast to retaliation, I say to you, do not resist the evil one. The controversy comes around this word resist. What does the word resist mean? Well, the word itself, antistami, means to resist, to take legal action against in the court of law, to set against, especially in battle, or or to withstand. Now, Walter Wink argues that this word antistami means more in Matthew 5.39 than simply to stand against or to resist. In the time of Jesus, we must not forget that the Jewish people were subject to Rome. They were occupied. And that there were those in the midst who wanted nothing more than to use violence against Roman occupation. These were called the Zealots. And in fact, Jesus, one of his disciples, was called Simon the Zealot. So in this context, antistami can mean to resist violently, to revolt or to rebel or to engage in in vengeance. And Jesus is warning his audience about this type of resistance to evil. He's not encouraging submission, just avoiding this kind of violent resistance. So the point that I see Jesus making is that he's cautioning us from becoming like the very evil that we oppose by adopting evil methods. Remember the hero who ends up behaving like the villain in order to defeat the villain. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, in effect, is do not mirror evil. Do not become the very thing you hate. Do not retaliate. The other part of this is, what is this evil he's referring to? Well, he's not focusing on evil as an abstract concept or a general entity of evil in the world, but rather personal, personified actions of one person towards another person. So the NIV translates this word as evil person, the NRSV as evildoer, and the ESV as the one who is evil. This is the one to whom Jesus is referring, the one before whom we must not respond with violence, as in injury for injury. Now you, may, you can ask, well, how does this look like in reality? This sounds great. 
Thank you, Lord. It's a wonderful teaching, but it's not my reality. Well, Jesus then goes on to provide three illustrations. And the first one, I don't know if it helps us or not. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Notice it says slap. It doesn't say punch, it doesn't say strike, it says slap. The Greek word means an open hand. That's how you're being struck. Why does he say right cheek? Why is it right cheek? Why is that so important in this? Well, let's see. This is very important to understand, the meaning here. In many cultures, the left hand is used for unclean purposes. You would not use your left hand to slap somebody. Among the first century Jewish uh, sect called the Essenes, even to gesture, hey you, with your left hand, required ten days penance. That's how bad it was to use your left hand. Sorry for those who are left-handed. Today we don't abide by that. So you would use your right hand to slap somebody. Now, I want you to try to do this. How would you slap somebody on their right cheek with your right hand? How would you do that? Their, their cheek's over here. So you're, you're doing this, right? Yeah. Now, it's not very effective. It's not very dignified. Going around going, and I'm going to hit you on the cheek. You know? So how would you do it? The back of your hand. You hit him in the back of the hand. So we're dealing here with an insult, not a fist fight. You're insulting somebody. The intention is to humiliate, not to injure. It's to put somebody in their in their hers or her place. According to J. Oswald Sanders, a backhand slap to the face was the Eastern equivalent of spitting in somebody's face, which is the ultimate insult. It was an attack on one's honor and considered to be terribly, a terrible indignity. One did not normally strike somebody who was your equal. You wouldn't do that. But if one did, the fine was exorbitant. Now hear this. According to uh, the Mishnah, if you hit somebody with your fist, the penalty is four days' wages. So now that you're thinking, okay, how much do I make a day if I'm working? Four days. It's almost a week wages. I'm not going to do it then, am I? If you slap somebody with this side, slap them, it's 200 days wages. That's the penalty. Whoa. The back of the hand, 400 days. There's a yield salary going just for hitting somebody in the back of the hand. Well, I'm not going to do it, am I? Not to an equal. I wouldn't do that to an equal. But I may be tempted to slap a slave or a poor person. And this leads us to the other important I understand in this verse. And that is, who was the audience who were listening to Jesus? In the crowd, for all three examples, the people primarily were poor. These listeners are not the people who strike or sue or force somebody to do anything. They're the poor. They're the lowest in society. Jesus says if somebody slaps you, wants to sue you, forces you to go a mile. It's the poor people. Among his crowd were people who knew exactly what he was talking about. They'd suffered these indignities. They were forced to stifle their outrage over what was happening to them because they had no social status. They had no economic power. They were the poor. So 
why does Jesus counsel them? They're already humiliated. Why does he tell them, okay, turn the other cheek? Well, in short, doing so robs the oppressor of the power to humiliate. The person who turns the other cheek is saying, in effect, try again. Your first blow failed to achieve its intended effect. I deny you the power to humiliate me. I'm a human being just like you are. And you cannot demean me. Now, by doing this, okay, I've been striking my, my right cheek, okay, I turn my left cheek now. Now, what are you going to do? You can't use your left hand. If you use your right hand and hit me on this side, now you're saying you're my equal. Now you're saying that we're of the same. And so he makes, by doing so, the person he wants to humiliate an equal. So the point of the backhand was to enforce inequality, but the front of the hand does not. So by not retaliating, the person shows that the attempt to humiliate has failed. And the second example is in a court of law. Again, something the audience would be familiar with. Someone is being sued for an undergarment or tunic. And Jesus says to him, give your cloak or outer garment as well. Now, the tunic is a garment worn under your cloak. And in Exodus 22:26-27, it outlines the conditions under which a cloak may be taken as a pledge. It says this, if ever you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Now notice what Jesus says here. He doesn't say if anyone sues you for your cloak. He says your tunic which is permitted, not permitted under, under scripture. The cloak is, but not, not the tunic. This would be humiliating. It's like somebody suing you for your shirt and you give your jacket as well. You see, only the poorest of the poor would have nothing but a garment to give us collateral. I owe you something. All I have is my jacket. That's all I have. It's all, my only possession. And Jewish law strictly prohibited keeping that overnight. He had to give it back. So the situation Jesus speaks about is familiar to the poor people that he's speaking to. The debtor has sunk into deep poverty. He can't pay, pay, pay the debt and his creditor takes him to court and says, I want something from him. So they're poor and they detest the system. It's taken their lands, their goods, their property and now even their inner garments. So why does Jesus say give the outer garment as well? Isn't that kind of excessive? Well, look at it this way. If the inner garment is surrendered, the tunic is given away, technically, Exodus 22 would not be violated. You still have your cloak. I didn't take his cloak. I just took his, his, his shirt, his tunic. So when Jesus says, give the cloak also, he's turning the tables on the creditor. Because ironically, the, de the debtor who gave his tunic and his cloak would be practically naked, have no clothes. Practically, not completely. And this is taboo in Judaism to be walking around without sufficient clothing. Not for the person who's doing it, but for those who are looking at him or those who caused that situation. 
And so by doing this, it would expose the creditors' devious and malicious actions for everybody to see. I see you for your tunic. I give it. give my cloak as well. And you're going, no, no, I don't want your cloak. Yes, you're getting my cloak. Everybody knows what you tried to do. You tried to humiliate this man and take everything he has. You can't do that. At the same time, by doing this, the poor man has registered a stunning protest against the system that has created this debt. He has said, in effect, you want my tunic? Here, take everything. It's all I have. This offers a creditor a chance to see perhaps for the first time in his life what is the result of his behavior and maybe perhaps to repent and to confess to God. The final illustration is also equally familiar to his audience. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Jesus is referring here to the practice of the Roman army, the soldiers, known as impressed or forced labor. In this case, it was common for, us, for soldiers to require a local person to carry their pack for them. They'd force him to do it. They could weigh 85 pounds, 40 kilos. And in scripture, we see this happening. At the crucifixion, when Jesus was bearing his cross and could not carry the weight, physical weight of the cross, what did the soldiers do? They looked around and they said, you, you come and carry this cross. Not a question, it's a command. You come and do it. Simon of Cyrene had no choice but to carry the cross of Christ. Now Roman law, military law, limited the distance to no more than one Roman mile or a thousand steps. Those of you who carry the fit band, count your steps. How long is a thousand steps? You've got to carry his pack for a thousand steps. Now such forced labor was a constant feature of Roman and before then Persian occupation. It was a way to have forced labor. And it was bitterly resented by the local people. In fact, there were accounts of whole villages fleeing so they wouldn't have to carry the Romans' equipment. In this context of Roman military occupation, Jesus is saying, don't revolt. One does not befriend a soldier, draw him aside and put a knife in his stomach. No, Jesus is saying, armed insurrection is not going to work. He did not encourage the zealots to raise up arms against Rome, who wanted to use violence and fight against Roman occupation. This is not the way of life in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, I get that. But why carry a pack a second mile? Doesn't this amount to abating, uh, abetting and aiding the enemy? This person's occupying my land, taking my money, oppressing me, and now I'm going to help him? That's what Jesus says. The question here is, as in the previous two illustrations, how do we respond and maintain our dignity for something that we cannot change? You cannot refuse the soldier's request. I like what Wink says. He says, the rules are Caesar's, but how one responds belongs to God. Caesar has no power over God. Our society has power over us, but not the power over God. So I want you to imagine this. You're carrying the soldier's pack. You have no choice in the matter. When you get to the next mile marker, the soldier expects you to throw down the pack and you're done. He can't make you force you to go any further. 
But in that moment, the civilian says, no, 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 I'll carry another mile. This doesn't happen. The soldier may well think, why are you doing this? What, what are you up to? See, no many soldiers had to co- coerce people to carry their packs. But this person does it cheerfully and will not stop. The soldier may think, is this a provocation? Is this a trap? Are you insulting me? What's going on? You see, Jesus does not encourage us to walk a second mile in order to build up merit for heaven or to exercise piety or to kill a soldier with kindness. He's helping people find a way to protest and neutralize an onerous practice despised throughout the empire, a practice that they had no choice but to accept. And to those who spent a lifetime cringing under their masters, Jesus offers a way to become free from servile and servile mentality. By following Christ, they begin to behave with dignity. In Jesus, the reign of God is already breaking into the world. And as it arrives, it doesn't come from on high as an imposition, but like leaven in the dough, quietly rising. Jesus' teaching on nonviolence is such a result of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. Now these illustrations should remind you of something. The eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.12 says this about us. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you choose to follow Christ seriously, you will face conflict. So you have plenty of opportunities to turn the other cheek, hand over a jacket, walk an extra mile. But Jesus has one more crucial thing to say, and that's found in verse 42. He says, give to the one who begs from you, and then it refuse the one who would borrow from you. Up to now, Jesus has largely been speaking to the poor people. Now he's speaking to those who were not so poor and tells them to be prepared to give and to lend. Those who beg and those who borrow have nothing. It's humiliating to beg. It's humiliating to come cap in hand and say, can I borrow some bread or some clothes or some shelter? It's not done willingly. It's done because there's this desperate need. And Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, which I think you all should read. It's a tremendous book. He says this. Within the human order, the presumption is that you return harm for harm, that you do only what legal force requires you, that you give only to those who have some prior claim on you, such as family members. The presumption is precisely reversed once we stand within the kingdom. There the presumption is that I return good for evil and resist only for compelling reasons, that I will do more than I strictly must in order to help others, and that I give to the people who merely, merely because they have a need and have asked me. Of course, in each case, one must determine if the gift should be given and is appropriate for the person's requirements. Jesus expects his followers to have a generous spirit because they loosely hold on to their personal rights and possessions. They can freely give when the need arises and won't turn away from one who wants to borrow. 
Um, he's not telling us to give everything away. He's saying use discernment. Make sure that what you're doing is what God has instructed you to do. What a person may want may not be in their best interest. So you refrain. That's another way of giving, giving them what they, what they need, not what they want. So before we summarize this, I want to give an illustration. You have all experienced times of humiliation. Something's been done to you that you wanted to get back at the person. It's human nature. When I was a university student, I worked for a company. I was in engineering, and I worked for a, a small manufacturing company. And one of my bosses was a particularly uh, unpleasant fellow. Perhaps you can identify. Maybe if you have a boss who's not the nicest person in the world. Maybe you have a wonderful boss, like I am. But I worked for this man, and we went to another factory, another location near us. And for some reason, my boss decided to humiliate me in front of the other, other guy who was working in the company. I don't know why. But he was, you know, criticizing me. And I could see in the other guy's face the kind of like, ooh, you know, that's not nice to say. I didn't say anything. I didn't, if I had a retaliate, I'd lose my job. You're fired. No, I didn't say anything. I went home that weekend and I said, God, I need to quit the job. I can't take this anymore. So I didn't retaliate. I just went to God. What should I do? The Lord said, go back to work. I wanted to go back to work. So I did. I didn't know why, but then I discovered why. Because there was a chance to actually give. My boss didn't change very much. He got a little better, but he didn't change much. But his son came to work for the summer. And he treated his son the way he was treating me, which is even worse because this is his dad. So I was in a position to minister to his son, knowing exactly how he was feeling. Not retaliating allowed me to be in a position to still be there and to bless somebody else, to be able to give. Now, that's nothing down to me. That's simply what God prompted me to do at that moment. Because each of these situations is yours, and you will have to figure out what to do in each situation. So in summary, Jesus calls us to exercise non-violent resistance, not to retaliate. Of course we must resist evil. It wouldn't be human being to watch evil happen and not do anything. But the question is one of means. Likewise, Christians are not forbidden to engage in self-defense, but they do so if possible non-violently. Jesus did not teach passivity in the face of evil. We're not supposed to be passive. That's precisely what he was attempting to overcome. As we make a decision in that moment, not just to accept, but to respond in a different way than is expected. What happens if uh, somebody yells at you and you yell at them back? It gets worse. Because now they may feel bad they yell at you, but by your response they feel justified to respond to you. By not opening your mouth, sometimes ends it right there. It's painful. It's hurtful, you grind your teeth, you're not going to say anything, but in the end, it's for the best. The one who is declared righteous by faith in Christ must live in the same way the Savior did. In today's text, this means not to retaliate, 
nor seek revenge for a personal offense, but to respond with the strength to give. John Stott puts it this way. He says, Jesus was not prohibiting the administration of justice, but rather forbidding us to take the law into our own hands. An eye for an eye is a principle of justice that belongs to the courts. They're the ones who punish. In personal life, we must rid ourselves of all retaliation at both word and deed and remove from ourselves animosity of spirit. We can and must commit our cause to God and our righteous judge, as Jesus did. It's not for us to to seek our desire for personal revenge. It was not repay injury for injury, but suffer it and overcome evil with the good. So where does it leave us? As he finishes off, okay, what about us? What happens now? Well, followers of Jesus really should be known for how we live in similarity to Jesus. Our lives should be similar to his, imitation of his. And Jesus did not retaliate. He left final judgment to God the Father. Jesus freely gave of himself even unto death. And he calls each of us to follow in the same footsteps. And as the Spirit fills us with the required wisdom and ability, living out the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular refraining from the desire to retaliate, is not something we can do without Christ. Don't try, you'll fail. You must be walking with Christ to go through these situations. Now, as to how this all works in practice, well, I'm going to hand over the ball, because next week is part two of this. This is only part one. Very often, these texts are preached together as one block of text. So Pastor Brent will lead us next week sorry, through uh, an even more compelling requirement for those who are in Christ and who belong to the kingdom and yet live in a world of sin, corruption, and evil. For now, how do you respond to a difficult employer like your boss? How do you respond to a stranger who is upset with you? How do you respond to a colleague, a neighbor, a teacher, a fellow student when they mistreat you? How are we supposed to react? Take a breath. Don't retaliate. Ask Christ to grant you the wisdom and the courage not to retaliate or take revenge, even if it is justified. We honor Christ by our obedience to him and we honor those who would seek to humiliate us by treating them with the respect they deny us, even as we seek their blessing. That is a different worldview. That is a different culture than what we live in right now. We follow Christ who didn't retaliate. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, your words are not easy to hear or to follow. We confess, Lord, that many times we have taken vengeance into our own hands or we have been those who have uh, started the cycle of retaliation by what we've done. We ask, Lord, by your spirit that you would fill us with wisdom and with the courage to follow you in not retaliating in not having vengeance, but in seeing the other as you see them, that you would fill us, God, with the capacity to be like you 
that comes only from you, Lord. We depend only on you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. May God bless you this week.